produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we discuss how social disconnection can affect communities and the economy. We've seen, you know, a number of people start in roles who still haven't physically met the people that they work with. We examine the role that kindness plays in combating the growing trend of global loneliness. Neuroscientists tell us we are hardwired to cooperate. So that's our natural state. That's the essential human quality to being cooperative and kind. And we find out how one woman's effort to create community connection has sparked a social movement. The more people you've got involved, the more people wanting to promote social change is, is amazing. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. There's a common belief that adversity can make us stronger and make us more connected as a community. So the question is, could one of the effects of COVID be that it creates a kinder society? To look at this more closely, I spoke to social psychologist Hugh Mackay to discuss his latest book, The Kindness Revolution. Hugh Mackay, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Whitney. Lovely to be with you. Um, the spread of kindness as a social movement had started well before the pandemic. In your view, what was prompting it back then? Yeah, um, I think the, the starting point for an answer to that question is just to remind us of something that's so blindingly obvious, you might think it's not worth even mentioning, but we humans belong to a social species. Mm. Uh, in other words, it's natural for us to be connected. We need families, neighbourhoods, groups, communities of all kinds to sustain us and nurture us. Um, and kindness is one of the magic ingredients that keeps us connected. I mean, we neuroscientists tell us we are hardwired to cooperate and mm. we cooperate through kindness, mutual respect, making sacrifices for the common good and so on. So that's our natural state that's the essential human quality, being cooperative and kind. However, I think the reason why kindness had become, as you say, a kind of social movement well before the pandemic mm. is that in the last 30 or 40 years in Western societies and certainly including Australia, we've seen so much quite radical uh, social change powerful social trends that have been reshaping our society in a particular direction. Mm. And that direction has been to take us away from our essential character as social beings and to make us more individualistic, mm. to make our society um, more fragmented. And there I'm talking about things like our shrinking households, our high rate of relationship breakdown, uh, our mobility, our busyness, mm. our embrace of information technology. There's a whole lot of big, big shifts. Uh, but cumulatively, their effect has been to, to make us, well, what sociologists call more atomized. Mm. Um, and the evidence for that, and this I think is why there's been the sort of counter-revolution in the direction of kindness, the evidence of that is in the three epidemics that have had us in their grip for a large part of this 
the 30 or 40 year period that I'm describing, but particularly the last 20 years, and that's our epidemics of loneliness, anxiety and depression. Mm. And they're very closely connected to each other and they are symptoms. Uh, They're very, very predictable symptoms of what happens to a society when it becomes more fragmented. So what inspired you then to write your latest book, The Kindness Revolution? Was it something that you'd thought about pre-COVID or was it sort of exacerbated by COVID? Uh, It was exacerbated by COVID. The the trigger was actually the bushfires (laughs) Uh, and the the fact that all around Australia, dealing with bushfires worse than in our recorded history, um, people responded so well. And I thought, yes, that's what people do when there's a crisis. And isn't it a strange thing about human nature that we often do need a crisis or a catastrophe to force us back to our core nature. Mm. Uh, And then, while I was pondering all that, along came COVID-19 and suddenly here was a pandemic that was going to be as disruptive to our way of life as the Great Depression of the 1930s. Mm. And so I thought, here is one of those disruptions and people are going to behave well. We're going to see an outbreak of kindness, more willingness to make sacrifices for the common good, all of those qualities that come to the fore always in response to a crisis. That was definitely a theme of 2020. But in 2021, you've kind of seen twin narratives running side by side where you've got people who are, you know, we've got to protect the weak in the community and, you know, I'll wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have people who are protesting yeah, it's a big question, Whitney. And and we have to remind ourselves that the protesters are a tiny, tiny minority of the community. I mean, you just mm. have to look at the vaccination rates to realise that most of us have got on board with the idea that this is something we are doing not just for ourselves, but for each other. Mm. But it is true that we humans live perpetually with the tension between a sense of ourselves as individuals with rights and entitlements and our sense of ourselves as interdependent, interconnected, Mm. and the ego will sometimes break the leash and will (laughs) sometimes say, I've had enough of sacrifices for the common good. This is all very well about living cooperatively. And what about me? Well, Mm. we all have those tensions. We all experience that sometimes. Most of us manage to keep that on the leash, particularly in a crisis, but inevitably, for some people, it will break out. You mentioned earlier that the inspiration for your book was the trio of pandemics, I guess, that we've been suffering from loneliness, depression, anxiety. To what extent do you think that technology is playing a role in the rise of anxiety, loneliness and depression? It's a complicated issue, Whitney, because no. first of all, we're not about to turn the clock back. Mm. We've all embraced the technology. It's transformed our lives, our working lives, our personal lives. Mm. The promise of this revolution was that we would be more connected than ever before in history, and that's true. But it is paradoxical. While making us more connected than ever before, 
this technology has made it easier than ever before for us to stay apart. Mm. So many of our messages to each other are mediated via the technology at the expense mm. of face-to-face interpersonal communication. And neuroscientists, they've told us that we need preferably a daily dose of human contact, which doesn't mean contact with a screen or via a screen. It means eye contact. Uh, Actually, looking another person in the eye is like a kind of emotional superhighway to the brain. It nurtures us, it feeds us. Uh, It reinforces our sense of common humanity, all that stuff that's really fundamental to our mental and emotional health. Mm. Social isolation is associated with so many health hazards. It's a long list. It's not just uh, loneliness and anxiety and depression. It's hypertension, inflammation, Mm. uh, disturbed sleep, vulnerability to addiction, uh, reduced longevity. I mean, these are now demonstrable health hazards associated with being deprived of enough human contact. It's a, it's a bit like we, we need to eat mm. in order to survive and we get hungry and that tells us we've got to eat. And if we don't eat, then I don't know about you, but in my case, I get quite cranky and irritable. And <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm more likely to be angry. Hangry. You, you get yes, hangry. Yeah. <laughs> and that happens before lunch, but it never happens after lunch. Yeah. Uh, so what we have, particularly in social media where there's so much anger, so mm. much abuse, trolling, mm. uh, intimidation, bullying, all that stuff, uh, that is because um, the heaviest users of social media are deprived of their sufficient daily intake of eye contact, etc like their emotional, psychological food. So it's not just connected but lonely. Mm. In the case of being hyper-connected, it's connected and angry. And it can make you very socially lazy because you kind of go, you know what, let's just do a Zoom call. (laughs) You get out of practice of being around people. Yes, there's no doubt that we condition ourselves into thinking that this is human communication, that we're still Mm. meeting we're just mm. doing it via Zoom. Well, no, we're not. We're meeting. We're each meeting a screen. I yeah. mean, you can't you can't make eye contact mm. on Zoom. Yeah. Um, if we were on Zoom now and I was looking into your eyes on the screen, you would see my eyes as being below your eye line. Mm. For you to think that I was looking into your eyes, I'd have to gaze at the camera, which means I wouldn't then be looking at you. I mean, it's very weird. Yeah. And by the way, the brain has a lot of trouble with all this, which is why people so often report that a one-hour Zoom meeting is far more tiring than a one-hour in-person meeting. It is. I've I've had that and I've gone... I haven't done anything. Like I've, I've literally yeah, been, been sitting been in a sitting chair yeah. on a screen and I'm more exhausted than I would be in an in-person meeting. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because the brain is struggling to process a flat two-dimensional image as if it's, it's a human interaction, which it isn't. Um, Hugh, is kindness the panacea to loneliness and the nefarious effects it has on society, do you think? Yeah. I absolutely do think that. Um, Those of us who are not experiencing loneliness or social isolation, I think have an inescapable moral obligation. If you think of us as a social species, you could say this is actually a biological obligation to reach out and connect 
with people who are at risk of social isolation and therefore at risk of loneliness and show kindness towards them. And that's not something dramatic. That might be just to smile and say hello when you pass someone in the street or stand with them at a bus stop or in a lift because they might be lonely. Mm. People who are feeling lonely can also uh, help to alleviate their own loneliness by reaching out with acts of kindness to others. To reach out and think about the needs of someone else immediately shifts the focus from what I'm feeling to what I could do to respond to someone else's need. It's, it's like magic. I mean, it is like the, it, it, it is like the antidote. It's interesting you say that because there was a Christmas where I was, it was the first Christmas I'd been on my own, my folks were overseas, and I decided to spend it at the Salvation Army on the Christmas day. And I have to say, Hugh, it was probably the best Christmas I've had since I was a child. Yes, you were being true to your human nature. That is what humans are built to do. Right. To help each other, to create and maintain social harmony, to engage, to respond to the needs of other people. That's our biological duty, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we curl up in a ball and say, gee, I feel lonely, you know, uh, what we're doing is denying that we are social beings, that we actually need connection with other people and they need us to engage with them. In your book, you talk about how COVID has sparked the potential for kindness to become the norm and that instead of Australia being the lucky country, it could be the kind country. Now, I've thought about that too, but I'm just wondering how likely is that given that people are prone to return to type, if you get my drift? Yes. This could be a revolution, Whitney, mm-hmm, but, it's a, mm-hmm. but revolutions like this never start at the top. I mean, we're not going to have a federal government passing uh, a kindness act Mm. declaring that we're all going to be nice to each other from now on. Of course, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you and and I and other people who might be listening to this podcast individually are going to say, I could live as if kindness comes as naturally to me as breathing, because that's actually true. We Mm. are actual, that capacity for kindness is innate. That's going to be my way of being in the world. Uh, And gradually, I mean, I really believe in this proposition that kindness multiplies, that your act of kindness to someone increases the probability of them behaving more kindly to someone else because they will have experienced your kindness as a therapeutic gift. And that's something that we treasure and are likely to pass on. Hugh Mackay, thank you for joining the program. Great pleasure. Thank you, Whitney. Before the pandemic, the trend of loneliness across Australia and the globe was growing exponentially. And social disconnection has only increased with COVID-induced lockdowns and isolation. To understand how this is really affecting individuals, societies and economies, I caught up with KPMG's mental health advisory lead, Andrew Dempster. Andrew Dempster, welcome to the program. Thanks, Whitney. Good to be with you. 
Andrew, we're talking about the loneliness trend in this episode. For you in the work that you do, this was really starting way before COVID hit. What were you seeing back then? Yeah, we, I, I think um, it's it's really interesting that we're having this discussion today. It's probably uh, three or four years ago. Um, we originally, I think, connected on this mm, on this topic. Yeah, we with did. Me and, That's right. At the time, really, uh, there was a, a big shift in particularly in healthcare and mental health where I work, and a lot of the organisations and service providers we're, we're working with were really getting increasingly concerned about loneliness and, and social isolation, uh, you know, the mental health and the physical health um, mm. impacts. And really, I think as a country, we were just starting to to look at, well, what what can we do from a, a social policy perspective? What can we do from a, a healthcare perspective? And, and more broadly, I suppose, how do we start, you know, addressing, uh, you know, some of the challenges that come with um, isolation and loneliness uh, that, you know, really was just starting to kind of um, become a, a quite a, a focused topic uh, back then. And I think, you know, has only uh, increased during the during the recent uh, pandemic. Mm. That takes me to my next point. In your view, how has the pandemic ratcheted up this loneliness and disconnection trend? Yeah, look, I think it's really focused people on the way that we connect, just physically, even the the ability to connect, and an increased awareness of how much we really do need that social interaction, how much we appreciate being able to connect and probably even a, a degree of tiredness uh, around the mm. way that we connect and the, the virtual fatigue that we're all experiencing. There's a lot of fatigue, but I think there's also the term languishing was really popularised earlier in the year that indicated that we're all just kind of a bit over it. Um, interesting also, you mentioned, you know, connection with family, friends, etc. It's not only that deep connection, but it's also just the ancillary social connections that you get during the day. I think we've underestimated how important that sort of incidental connection is, Andrew. Would you would you say that too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, um, you know, particularly that incidental um, interaction that we get in our daily lives, particularly if people are going to work, to school, mm. doing training, they, they've got their routines. And what we've seen is really a, a dropping off of some of those incidental interactions that people have in their day when they having those conversations about sport, about family, about um, uh, the, the weather that um, have all, all of a sudden vanished from our um, daily uh, sort of activity and for those of us who can work um, virtually now often very kind of purposeful sort of uh, meetings on online and, and back to back without some of that more casual incidental interaction mm. and people are really missing that. Andrew, Hugh McKine, his interview for this program said that kindness is the antidote to this global wave of disconnection and loneliness. Do you think that simple acts of kindness are enough? I think they're a really great start. Definitely those sort of simple acts of kindness go a long way, um, mm -hmm. but they really do need to be supported by a broader focus at a societal level, but in our workplaces and organisations and even at senior levels of government. And I mean, really at local, state and federal government, I think there does need to be that considered 
thinking about you know how we do build in kindness and how we do confront some of the the challenges that we see with um, loneliness and, and social isolation and the impacts that that has on individuals. Are there any examples of programs or policies that have been put in place that you think really are working uh, that do address that kind of thing? Yeah, look, a couple that stand out and one I really love, and it's been trialled in a couple of different countries where they had uh, nursing home residents were visited by family and friends for five minutes on a video call for a three-month period, just once a week. Mm -hmm. And they used a control group who just had normal visitations as, as they historically were. And they compared the outcomes and those who had that regular social connection and interaction with their family and friends had lower depression rates, um, mm -hmm. they had lower anxiety rates and felt less lonely than their counterparts in the control group. So really, even with those very simple um, interactions, um, you know, some really positive outcomes in terms of people's you know, health and, and general well-being. And we've seen similar things in the Netherlands. They've actually piloted a trial where... Uh, university students in a local town were given free board at a nursing home if they participated in mm -hmm. meals once a day with the nursing home residents. And again, they saw really positive outcomes in terms of boosting the, um, the, the mental health and well-being of the, the residents. So I think some really good concrete examples. Yeah, I really like that. I think I'd read a story about the nursing home program and it's really interesting and it's also the intergenerational connection as well. Um, one thing I'm really interested in is many have said, and this is Hugh included, that mm. we really shouldn't lose the good bits that we've gained through this pandemic. Mm. Um, do you think it is possible or do you think people in societies, once they get busy and, you know, COVID becomes this kind of normalised thing, do you think they'll just revert to past behaviours? I, I do think that largely we will want to try and revert to how we interacted um, pre-pandemic. Mm. But I, I actually think there will be a shared trauma, I think particularly for those, and as Hugh highlighted in his discussion, that, that there is some groups who are going through, particularly those in kind of formative stages of their lives, those transitioning from you know, primary school to high school, those transitioning mm. out of high school, uh, into adult life, um, that they will remember, and this will be a kind of a, a very much a sort of a, you know, part of their um, history and their shared collective experience. And mm. I, I think similar to those with the Great Depression, you know, I still remember my grandmother who, who lived through the Great Depression. She kept making her no-egg flourless chocolate cakes for the rest of her life. Uh, and I do think similarly, we're going to see people adjust and adapt the way that they interact with their friendship groups and their, and their families and even um, the way that they potentially work for a number of years where we've seen, you know, a number of people start in roles who still haven't physically met the people that they work with. Some of those things are going to take A, a long time to shift back to a mix of pre-pandemic behaviour, but also a number of groups within society are actually going to probably continue along a lot of the, the things that they've adapted to and really hang on to those um, in the years to come. Andrew Dempster, thanks for joining the program. Thanks, Whitney. Great to be with you.
The charity The Chatty Cafe was started back in 2017 in the UK with the aim of increasing social connection and to help people who are feeling lonely to interact with others. To hear more about how the program works, I spoke to Alex Hoskin, founder of Chatty Cafe, and Glenis Reed, who leads the program in Australia. Alex Hoskin, Glynis Reed, welcome to the program. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you. Uh, Alex, I'll start with you. So what is the concept of Chatty Cafe? I think the concept in the kind of most simplest terms is uh, encouraging human interaction. I felt at the time when it started that that was something that was dwindling a bit from society. And I just always feel that having a conversation with an actual human can make someone go from feeling invisible to visible. And that in turn will kind of make people feel better, really. And you say at the time, this started way before COVID, didn't it? Yeah, so I had the initial kind of idea in 2016, but then started it a year later. Um, And that kind of came around really from being on maternity leave and spending a lot of time out of the house, but finding that I wasn't really having much interaction with other people. So so how did the idea spark? Tell me that story. Uh, so it started when, on one of these occasions, when I was with my, my baby um, in one of the local supermarket cafes, and I was feeling quite fed up. Um, and I looked round and there was an elderly lady on her own and she just looked really, really down in the dumps. Mm. You know, you can just tell. Uh, and on another table, there was a, a youngish guy with um, additional needs and I think his carer. And they were just sat looking around the room, not really making any conversation. And I just thought, God, it's a shame that we're all sat here on different tables, possibly feeling the same way. But how do we actually speak to each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what got me thinking about the idea of a table where customers could sit if they were happy to talk to other customers um, so that it was less kind of scary um, and and just made it a bit more kind of part of cafe culture. Did you at that time, though, did you kind of try to strike up a, a conversation with any of those those people that you were observing? No, I did. I obviously considered it, but mm-hmm. there is this stigma that if you go up to someone and start talking to them randomly, hmm. what are you after? Like, what, That's what's right. Your, that, you know, what's going on? What do you want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's like a social norm, isn't it? It's mm. something that you kind of understand in society. And I think that that prevented me from going up to those people that day, but made me think about creating an opportunity where that could be considered okay. So what sort of feedback have you had? I think the feedback from the actual individuals using the service has been really, really positive and and quite moving, to be honest. Mm. Um, When you hear people's personal stories and you hear how much people really do want human contact. Did you ever imagine that you'd be getting letters from the Prime Minister and being awarded an OBE? Uh, No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, when I had a Christmas card of Boris Johnson last year, I was I was extremely shocked. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd not sent him one back, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So it's uh, no, it's been amazing to to be recognised in this way and, and have these, you know, this OBE. It's it's, it's phenomenal, really, because it's such a huge thing. You know, I, I kind of it's it's not really sunk in. Well, you've also gotten some really good press. Was it one of the major morning shows that had a chatty cafe campaign? Was that right? 
Right. Yeah, so it's Good Morning Britain. It have run a campaign about people donating minutes to get involved with some different campaigns and the approach does. So since we launched our One Million Minutes campaign at the beginning of this week, we have had a staggering response. Over 29 and a half million minutes of your time have now been pledged to help older, lonely people this Christmas. It's amazing. So, we so that's been million. incredible. Um, and I think what's amazing for us is it's the, the advertisement that generates the marketing. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that it, it's been given that validity by these bigger organisations, you, you can't underestimate how important that is as a driving force. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it has become quite a phenomenon. And Alex, firstly, did you ever think that this would not only take off, but then expand around the world? No, I mean, obviously, you never think anything like that when you just sat in your bedroom, you know, with some yeah. post-it notes uh, yeah. and a laptop. <laughs> but I think the more there is out there, the better. Mm. It's, this is not a money-making thing. You're not going to get rich off this. It's to do something good and, and kind of promote social change really so mm. the more people you've got involved the more people wanting to to do this is, is amazing and Glennis how did you pick up on the idea and how and and how did you introduce it to Australia well Alex and my story are very very similar actually um I had an unexpected um and quite surprising period of sort of social isolation and loneliness mm. um I looked around and and also noticed that there was a lot of people sitting uh, alone in uh, cafes and restaurants, I would actually be brave enough to go up and just say to them, you know, sort of, you know, how are you going? And um, mention something funny that might be happening in the cafe or the restaurant at the time. And next thing I knew, you know, we'd been chatting for half an hour. Um, so I did have, have an idea and I was discussing the concept on a teleconference with a friend in the UK. And he said, oh, I think we've got something like that here. Mm. And then um, from there, uh, our first cafe in Australia signed up uh, in October 2019, and uh, then we hit the bushfires, yeah. uh, and then we on the east eastern seaboard here, and then we hit COVID. Yeah. So uh, having uh, begun it in October 2019, it's been quite a perfect storm uh, around trying to get up at Chatty Cafe Australia. But uh, my view is that people will have a lot more compassion now for people that are potentially socially isolated. Uh, the, the research in Australia already prior to COVID was that one in four people was lonely. Mm, mm. With COVID, that had uh, increased to one in two people. Mm. Victorian seniors came out with the research recently. It's just referred to here as a, it's called the loneliness pandemic. Mm. And it's not just, I mean, oftentimes I hear the Australian data focuses on younger people and it's kind of linked to social media and stuff, but it's not just younger people. I mean, it is a whole wide range of age groups that are feeling this sort of isolation. Is that what you, you both have found? Or, or Glennis, I'll stay with you for the time being. Um, absolutely. It's across all demographics. And the fantastic thing about Chatty is that everyone is welcome. Yeah. And it's, it's across all social demographics and, and, and preferences. Uh, and there's no discrimination. Glennis, have you found that the idea has directly translated in Australia? Or have you had to make adjustments? Really, the only adjustment that we've made is um, in uh, the UK, the tables are referred to as chatter and natter tables, mm -hmm. and that really wasn't um, going to fit for Australian culture. So our tables are have a chat uh, tables. Yeah. I would say in Australia at the moment, um, and particularly on the Eastern Seaboard, and similar to what Alex said, is that community-focused venues, such as community centres, neighbourhood houses, um, those sorts of venues um, are definitely... Uh, picked up the idea. The commercial venues are really struggling at the moment because of the economic impact mm. of COVID. 
And so we're not, don't have um, incredibly high expectations about commercial venues at the moment, but we're hoping that in 2022, um, we see a shift in terms of their um, ability and willingness. But Alex is correct in saying, even if those venues sign up, they have to be community focused and have a real investment in Chatty Cafe if they're going to have it work. Mm, Be committed to the idea. Do you think that the idea is successful because people can feel much more comfortable talking to strangers rather than people that they know well. Do you think that that has something to do with this? I think that because we're trying to promote human interaction, we're not like a counselling service. We're not, um, you know, human interaction can just be quite superficial Mm. but it actually even on a superficial level like how's your day going uh what what do you think of the weather that even that can make you feel part of society Mm -hmm. like just somebody saying that to you in this you know in such a basic form just addressing you as a person can be really important so I think that um you know it strangers can do that quite well you know you can have these quite light conversations and you never know they may develop into deeper conversations and that's equally great but I think that that is you know in some ways what is good about random uh, interactions. Yeah I mean I I will say that in our last lockdown here in Sydney um it was very different from the first lockdown for for Sydney siders I, I think it's different in Victoria but um I'm not somebody, like, I like my own company and I don't have a problem being by myself. But it started to really get to me because, like, I didn't have that incidental interaction with people. Well, I never really thought that that was going to have much of an impact on my mental health or my outlook or anything. But take that away and it really does. You start to feel quite strange. It was almost like there was some sort of sensory deprivation or something, if that makes sense. I think what you're saying about your experience, I've spoken to many people who've had similar experience. You don't recognise the importance of those um, sort of transitional uh, interactions that you have with people on a daily basis that are so important for uh, mental health. And that was my experience. The barista in the first cafe that engaged with Chatty Cafe, a Claire here in Hampton, uh, that the barista's um, just, you know, a great fella. And, uh, and for me, when I was lonely... Just interacting with him for even, you know, 10 minutes Mm. um, while I waited for my coffee was significant. What are your future plans for the program? Personally, I want to kind of get involved with more social change Mm -hmm. and kind of thinking about 21st century approaches to things. Mm -hmm. I'm a social worker in my day job and a lot of the things we have out there They've, they've been the same solutions for years and years and years and people are, you know, are, have evolved. Mm. That's one of the things I was keen on with Chatty Cafe was that it, it's more of a modern solution. People use cafes, they use coffee yeah. shops. Yep. It's part of people's life, especially in Australia. You guys are, are, are really into them, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's like it's kind of incorporating um, people's day-to-day lives into solutions um or trying to tackle things rather than solutions but yeah so I think I just I'm going to keep going with that and and obviously just keep pushing for the chatty cafe scheme to get um to be part of cafe culture Mm. and to be something that people uh, are familiar with yeah it should be ubiquitous that if someone wanders into a cafe or a restaurant or some sort of social hospitality environment 
that a place has a chatty table where people can choose to sit if they want to chat with other customers. Mm. Uh, That's the grand plan for Australia. That's my vision um, and that of my um, colleagues who are all volunteers who are helping drive it. Well, Alex and Glennis, thank you for joining the program. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Whitney. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. If you'd like to check out Hugh Mackay's book, The Kindness Revolution, I'll pop that in the show notes. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 